this is Madison Cunningham, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. I remember them at the Palladium. The funny thing with them was they, they had Love Me Do, I think, I got to 17. They were just another band. But then they played the Palladium, which was the big thing in England at that time. Everybody watched it. It was only one channel, maybe two. Well, it was obvious with them. I mean, McCartney would have been Sinatra in another world, you know. And Lennon was like about as rock as you can get. The combination of the two, you know, song-wise, lyric-wise, perfect combination. Flukes, that's what makes bands, you know, flukes. Today's guest is Ian Hunter, the legendary singer-songwriter, author, and rock and roll star whose illustrious career is now in its seventh decade. His rock and roll life has long been marked by collaboration from the golden age of Mott the Hoople to his fabled partnership with Mick Ronson and 21st century renaissance with his crack-backing combo, The Rant Band. Over the years, Hunter has enjoyed numerous chart successes, especially Mott the Hoople's international hit, All the Young Dudes, the David Bowie composition that emerged as a countercultural anthem in the 1970s. The band also found success with such songs as Roll Away the Stone, Golden Age of Rock and Roll, Honoluchi Boogie, All the Way from Memphis, and Saturday Gigs. Hunter would later recount the trials and tribulations of his life with Mott the Hoople in his autobiography, Diary of a Rock and Roll Star. During his solo career, Hunter's best-known work includes the song Once Bitten, Twice Shy, later covered by Great White, and Cleveland Rocks, originally penned as England Rocks, the popular theme song for The Drew Carey Show. With his latest album, Defiance Part One, Hunter takes creative solidarity to an unprecedented level with accompaniment from a truly awe-inspiring roster of special guests, famous fans, and lifelong friends. Defiance Part One sees backing from no less than Ringo Starr, Johnny Depp, Jeff Beck, Todd Rundgren, Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, Guns N' Roses Slash, Metallica's Robert Trujillo, Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top fame, Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrew from The Box Cutters, Jeff Tweedy, Rich Pagano, and, in one of his final recordings, the Foo Fighters' late great drummer, Taylor Hawkins. As always, when it comes to Hunter, the rant bands James Maestro, Paul Page, and Dennis Debrizzi lend steady support. Welcome, Ian Hunter. 
Thank you for joining me today. And, and I got to say, I really love this new record. Oh, cheers. Thanks. So tell me about um, working with Ringo on Bed of Roses. We were downstairs. We, these were demos. Um, we're doing them in my basement, Andy York, who, who works with me and me. And we're just down there and we piddling about and um, our heads are nodding to this particular track. It was around 117 and it was like, this is a Ringo song, you know, this head nodding song, you know. And I'd played with him a while back and so we sent it to him and he, his whole attitude was, you know, if I like it, I'll do it. If I don't like it, I won't. Fortunately, he liked it, you know, and it came back three, four days later, and there it was. <laughs> well, it, so, it's classic, Ringo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's perfect. It's like, you, I got a huge smile on, I mean, like every little bit, every little touch, everything all the way through. It's perfect. And you were uh, on one of the, or more of the All-Star Band tours, correct? Yeah, I did one with him, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, around 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah. That's right. And I am ashamed to say that is one of the ones I missed, but it must have been something special to look back on your songs and and see Ringo back there behind the kit. Well, the, actually, the special thing was, was I came home from shopping with my wife one day and he was on the answering machine. And... Uh, that's a weird, it's a weird feeling when you get a Beatle on your answering machine. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. What, what did he say? It was like, oh, hello, Ian, how do you fancy doing a tour, you know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and it was like, uh, you know, pretty much out of the blue. And I was like, wow, you know, and that was it. Yeah. You know, in all of the solo Beatles world, I think the all-star band concept is one of the coolest things that has come about, bar none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's kept him busy over these years. Some incredible people he's worked with, and he chooses them all. And he he still has that sense of humor. He's good fun to be with, and it gets him out of the house, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, we all need that at a certain yeah. point. Yeah. So tell me, how did, how, did, uh, how did the music career of Ian Hunter kick into gear? Did you have musical parents? Oh, no, the opposite. No, it was reverse psychology. <laughs> um, my dad was a policeman and uh, he worked in MI5 and he was a captain in the army. So he's a very disciplined sort of man, you know, and uh, always like uh, tear away. So it didn't work, you know. Uh, he was a good man. He was, I mean, mum was a good, good mum. You know, they were good parents. They b brought you up properly, you know. But I was, it was not excited enough. So I had to get out of there, you know. I had to go seeking excitement. So how did you find it then in terms of music? What was the spark that that set you in motion? I went to Butlins, which is a holiday camp, like biggest legal brothel in Britain, you know, at the time. And they had talent competitions. And I met a couple of guys from Northampton, which is about 60 miles from London, much nearer than I lived. And we, went, and we entered this talent competition and uh, we won it. And so I moved to Northampton and joined a band there, but still semi-pro and still in love with it, you know, just as a fan, you know. I never thought I'd ever be pro. So it was kind of a lark in a way. Yeah, and I lived in Northampton for a while, and then I was out looking for gigs for my band, the local, you know, semi-pro pub gigs. 
And I saw this guy standing by a jukebox and I knew who he was and he was his name was Freddie Fingers Lee. And he played with a guy called Screaming Lord Such. And he'd fallen off the stage at Liverpool Empire with the piano on top of him. So he'd been in hospital and he was no longer, you know, playing professionally. He was, he'd gone back to Steeler acting, which was his trade. And uh, I said, you can't do that. Come to Northampton, come and stay at RS and we'll form a band, which we did. And Fred had a bit of a name. So we wound up, uh, instead of just doing little local gigs, in Northampton, we went to Germany and we were playing places like the Star Club, you know, Kiel, Hamburg, Duisburg, Eckenfurdy, places like that. And slowly, and I was playing bass with him, and slowly the idea formed of like, Jesus, because I was just a fan, semi-pro. I thought, maybe I can do this pro, you know, you never know your luck. <laughs> now, was that the Apex Group? No, the Apex Group was a Northampton band that, that I was also in as well, but they kicked me out. Because they wore jackets and I wouldn't wear a jacket. <laughs> it always comes down to apparel, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, they were good. They were good musically. They played, Northampton was surrounded by American bases and they, you know, they played more. So it was a good band to be in, but it was uh, very staid, you know, and they wore jackets and I didn't want to do that. So I got kicked out. But then I was with Fred and went to Germany, you know, and that was good because the, the Apex were semi-pro and they were always going to be semi-pro. They didn't want to turn pro. They got offered, skiffle it was, and they got offered pro and uh, they didn't want to do it. The guys had good jobs and stuff like that, you know. And so by this point, right, the Beatles have hit once by the time you're in Hamburg, right? Yeah, they'd been there in 62. We were there in 67. Aha. And was it still the raucous Reaper bomb and the whole business? Oh, it was great. It was great. It was three days up with no pills, nothing. Just excitement. It was a fabulous place to be. I mean, every uh, you name it. It was there, you know, good, bad, and different. It was uh, the place to be. <laughs> I have a feeling that's still true in a way. I don't know, because the last time I was there, I took somebody to see where it had been. It was then a bank. And apparently the bank burnt down after. So there's no trace of it, you know, as it was. But there was a place called the, the Mambo Shanky where everybody would go, uh, a jukebox in it. And um, the jazz guys used to go there that played. Now, all the musicians used to go into this place, the Mambo Shanky. And Tony Sheridan would go in there, you know, and the place would go quiet when Tony Sheridan walked in. He was a big star. And he would put his record on the jukebox and we all had to listen to it and go, yeah, you know. <laughs> Tony Sheridan was the first singer with the Beatles, you know, when they were the Silver Beatles. And there was also a keyboard player there called Roy Young. And uh, Roy, Horse Fasher owned the Star Club and he loved Roy. And Roy could play with any band that got up because there'd be seven bands a night. And uh, Roy turned down the Beatles. Roy was offered the Beatles gig by Epstein and he turned it down. And much later on, when Roy was living in Canada, I played with him and I said to him, how did you feel about the Beatles thing? You know, and he said, oh, I get up every morning, go in the bathroom, bang my head against the wall once. And uh, that's it. I'm fine. <laughs> so it's a daily ritual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
what was it like experiencing, you know, we are everything Fab Four here. What was it like experiencing the Beatles happening in real time then? I remember them at the Palladium. The funny thing with them was they, they had Love Me Do, I think, got to 17. They were just another band. But then they played the Palladium, which was the big thing in England at that time. Everybody watched it. There was only one channel, maybe two. Uh, Sunday night at the London Palladium, and they played that. And um, they did Twist and Shout. And I always remember, because Lennon went, you know when they go, ah, Lennon was out of tune. And I remember watching them, and they had an EP out called Twist and Shout at the time, I think. And it went to number one. And that was when everybody realized the Beatles were something else because that EP had never gone to number one, you know. But the song that got them to number one was Twist and Shout, which was, you know, the Isley Brothers. It wasn't a Beatles or anything. And they just killed on that show, right? I mean, it it was... Oh, yeah, that was the biggest show. Before and after. If you went on that show, you were number one, you know. And there was kind of a before and after effect. They'd had She Loves You by this point, and then... They were on everybody's minds, at least in, yeah. in the UK. Then it just went from there, you know, yeah. Yeah. They were different. They were separate. They were a step up, you know. What is it that that makes a band different, a step up? What is it that you hear it that 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 is that kind of something? And then when you tell me, well, you and I together will market it and we'll make a killing. <laughs> well, it was obvious with them. I mean, McCartney would have been Sinatra in another world you know and Lennon was like about as rock as you can get and uh, the combination of the two you know song wise lyric wise vocally wise you know you couldn't beat it and then you had George doing one one my guitar gently weeps and then you had Ringo who was the fun guy you know perfect combination flukes that's what makes bands you know flukes that's a good way to look at it, isn't it? When I talk about the the Beatles in my classes here on the Jersey Shore, I I point out that they're the outlier. That maybe that's not the one you aspire to be. No, it's 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 a it's a fluke. It's all it's all a fluke, you know. But uh, the trick is to hang in. Well, and there's no doubt you have done that. So you get back from Hamburg, and then what happens next in in your career? Poverty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah poverty it wasn't much fun there for a while and i'm sitting there and i have a mate miller anderson who just joined the keith hartley band so me and miller would be doing colleges and clubs and so they, he was no longer there and i was just uh kind of stuck in london and living in a two quid a week place with my first wife and kids and uh then I got offered this audition with this weird band, you know, and it was, and it turned out to be Mott the Hoople, you know. We'll be back with more from Ian Hunter after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're back with more from Everything Fab Four. Where, where do you get a name like Mott the Hoople? Did, did you have any input on that? 
No, no, it was Joe, Guy Stevens, who was the, the guy that put it together. He worked for Island Records in A&R, and he, he was in jail, and he found a book in jail called Mop the Hoople, and he always remembered the name because it sounded so odd, you know. And his idea was he wanted to put, uh, he wanted to put, I, don't, I forget what it was. He, I know he wanted a, a, a kind of a Stones, Dylan combination band. That's what he was looking for. And he think, and Mick Ralphs had been up to see him and he liked what was then called a silence. Um, but they had a singer called Stan, who was called a Sonata of Beat in Italy. And Guy didn't like Stan as a singer, but he liked the band because the band had long hair and they nodded their heads viciously. Um, so the audition was for me to go down and play with these guys out of silence. And uh, I got the job. And uh, Stan became the tour manager. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I've, I, I will confess, I have read the actual book, the, uh, the Willard Manus book, and it's, uh, I like the idea of of a hoople, right? Someone who makes things happen. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I, I always found that that kind of fascinating. And you seem like, uh, you know, um, in the breadth of your career, you're a person who makes things happen. And uh, it, you know, studying Mata Hoople as we we have, I I note that it it didn't happen right away, right? You guys really were putting in some time. Well, it, it, it was when they well when I did the audition. The band didn't particularly like me. The guy liked me, <laughs> so that awkward it was for about three four months. And I was sitting on the piano at the side. I wasn't the front man, and uh, Mick and Pete were supposed to be the writers. Well, I, uh, Pete was a good-looking bloke, and he was always off with girls, you know. So he said, "You write with Mick." And that's how I started writing with Mick, and. Uh, by the time Guy decided he didn't want me in the band after all, the band said, yeah, yeah, we want to keep him because I'd started writing, you know. So the whole thing was a was a kind of, uh, you never knew where you were, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, and, you know, as, as we know, creative differences are real mm -hmm. um, and do drive a serious wedge in so many bands. That must have been pretty tense for a while. Well, it was until we got it sorted out and then it, what was great about Pete and Buff, the rhythm section, was um, there was no jealousy involved. You, you never actually went in there and gave – what you did was you went in and sort of played the song in the corner on the organ or the guitar or the piano or something. You didn't say, listen to this song or anything. You just sort of did it up the corner. And me and Ralpha would do that. And, and if they were interested, they'd come over and go, what's that? And And – then it would develop from there, you know. They had, a, they had a real good way of, you know, songs coming into being because we never actually came in, I've got this song we're going to do. It didn't happen like that. It would just be jamming up a corner and they'd come over and they'd say, what is that? And that's how, that's how it worked. So it was really it was very organic then. Yeah, Mark was a... Not the greatest band in the world, but very they had the spirit. And they had the unselfishness musically. Uh, very selfish in other areas, but musically very unselfish, yeah. Well, and if, if, if that spirit translates into energy and 
you can excite a crowd. Yeah. That's most of the magic, isn't it? I don't know, but in their case, yeah. I mean, we, we sort of got this crowd. Um, it was like an army that just follows all over the country, you know. You know, I've heard people describe seeing the Beatles, uh, particularly in those days when you might see them live, you know, at the Palladium on television or on the Sullivan show or what have you, as being a, just one of those moments where it arrested you and you just couldn't look away um, or turn away or what have you. And, and I remember the first time vividly I ever heard all the young dudes and it had that exact effect on me. I immediately wanted to hear it again and again and again. And uh, I wonder if you could uh, you tell us about how you, how you come into Bowie's orbit and, and how that song comes about. Well, we, we'd been in Switzerland uh, doing horrible gigs and we decided to split up. And when we got back to London, um, Pete rang up David because David was forming a band at that time. And, and you know, Pete, the bass player, he wanted to be the bass player with Bowie, you know. And Bowie said, well, you're in Mott. And Pete said, well, no, we just split up. And then Bowie said, oh, you can't do that, you know. And it turned out he was a fan of Mott. So he immediately offered us Suffragette City, which we turned down. And then he, he sat in an office in Regent Street and cross-legged on the floor and he played dudes. And the first thing I thought was, I know I can sing this. And the second thing I thought was, this is a smash, you know. And, uh, <laughs> not, to, not to push matters, but what was... What was the intangible quality you heard in its rough form as Bowie sitting there on the floor? It wasn't rough. He played it good. He, he'd tried it himself before. That's why he was, you know, he was kind of wanting to give it away because he couldn't quite get the hang of it with his, with what he was doing. He was doing a lot of alto sax on it and he was doing it in a, a lower key. He was doing it in C. We took it up to D. Uh, with with us, we had a Hammond organ. You know, we worked a lot on the Hammond with Fally, um, and it slowly. We don't know. It's two evenings in Olympic Barns. I mean, it just developed, and he was very excited about it. And uh, Mick Wells put that great intro. Oh, that yeah. thing is that's amazing! That yeah. big guitar lick at the front. Yeah, yeah. And Mick put that on, so that excited him, and then. He was worried about the choruses. Well, they're just repeating themselves, you know. And I had a row. We used to do a thing called uh, Heckler's 10 Seconds in Mott, uh, where the, there'd be the audience and we would just stop playing and all the hecklers could shout F off and all that um, for 10 seconds. And then I'd get somebody to bring one of them down and I'd pour a beer over his head or something like that. <laughs> and uh, we'd, but I'd done that a couple of nights prior to us being in the studio recording dudes and so he was like the b-side was one of the boys he said one of the boys is a single they're out of the blue and we all went you're joking and he said it's too boring it's like it's the same chorus over and over so all i did was i did that rap that i'd done at the rainbow a couple of nights before stuck it on the end you know um, and uh, so then he said well that, that's great that's that's took away the boredom factor of it just going round and round and round you know it, it does. Go ahead. And then he, he mixed it, you know, and he mixed it thin because in those days, radio was the most important thing, you know, and radio worked with thinner mixes. And what would, just so our listeners who uh, may be younger than you and I, what, 
yeah. what what does it mean to mix something thin? Well, you know, you can have a you can have a big bolster of thick sound, or you can have a, a thinner sound. You know, a more see through sound, or, or probably slightly weaker sound. And the dude's album is like that too, because David radio was the most important thing. Roy Thomas Baker, another great producer. Same thing. They would mix things so it sounded great on the radio. Well, it, it sure translates. And it and with the bit that you pull off at the end with the, uh, as you said, heck, the heckler's moment, yeah, it, the has chat, a, yeah. it has a truly live feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another good way. I, I never thought of that. But he, well, was like stuff. He, he was well happy with it. What were the Ralphs doing the thing on the front? And, and it truly came together. We loved the song, you know. Great song. There's a there's a kind of nostalgia to it, isn't it? It, it? You know, it's it's one of those songs like "In My Life," um, which may seem an odd comparison, but you know, almost the moment they're made, they seem like they've always been there. Does that make any kind of sense? Well, it it, it does in the way that when when he played it to us sitting on the floor, it was like that's a hit. And there's something, it, there's something, it, it, it makes you think about the past, even when it's brand new, you know? No, I, I didn't think that way, no, because I mean, I knew uh, some of the people he was talking about. Um, no, it was very, at the time, you know, it was uh, the way he was living was all in that song. Tell me about the, the folk. So it, it's a, almost a Ramana Clef then. It, it has real people, real characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, those people were hanging about at Haddon Hall, you know. Yeah. And that would have been... Uh, how the hell he had Haddon Hall? I could never figure that out because he was paying 10 quid a week for a mansion. Which <laughs> was, like, absurd, you know. I mean, it was worth about five grand a week. So I don't know how he did that. And there's all these rooms and there was, you know, he'd have his outfit for the clothes and everything. He had Susie Ronson there for his hair. He had all these different people living there, you know. And then people were dropping by, like Fred and all these people. And they're all in his lyrics. Yeah. And even that that sort of backward look at, you know, what is his brothers playing the Beatles and the Stones, that kind of. Well, yeah, that was calculated. That was like. <laughs> now tell me about why was that calculated? Well, to me, I, I didn't discuss it with him, but like he was definitely cutting them, cutting them off. Next. <laughs> That's an important thing, isn't it? I guess so. I, I mean, it's, it's a bit mathematical, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was clever. I just, look, I just sang it. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask him, you know, and unfortunately you can't. I wish we could, yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get an answer out of him that would make any sense anyway. <laughs> I think it's one of the best parts of the song because yeah. it's important, you know. we Music needs to continually regenerate and... Uh, those two bands had loomed so large, it was sort of time to turn the page, uh, you know, in, in the, without forgetting them naturally, but, but it was, yes, absolutely. And so <laughs> I guess in a way is the song kind of a who's who of glam rock. What dudes dudes? Yeah. The, all the young dudes. I mean, is it, it's kind of this yeah. moment in time about glam rock. Freddie's got spots, you know, Freddie was his mate, you know, yeah, yeah. I didn't care, I mean, to me it was, the lyric was great, it was easy to sing, the phrasing of the lyric with the with the music was good. <laughs> you know, it was fine, I mean, we were just happy to do it, and uh, 
I guess there was a slight gay element to it, which at the time was apparently important to some people. We didn't care, you know, we just thought it was a great song. Well, and an important element that has people revisiting it today, right? I mean, it's... It doesn't, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. It seems to still be around, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just magic in that song. And um, uh, I'm just proud to be talking to the guy who sang it. <laughs> Well, then, you know, the problem was we had to follow it, you know. And uh, the natural thing was to do another David song. But then, you you know, all the critics were going to say, well, you can't exist without David. And so there was a nine months of frantic, me and Mick trying to, you know, write a hit. You know, and finally we managed to write, we had three or four more, I forget, after that. And uh, so we became our own band again, you know what I mean? Dudes was kind of like a, the breakthrough. We had Sweet Jane and a number of other songs, right? We had all the way from Memphis. Well, we had them over there. They weren't hits over here. They were hits in England, all the way from Memphis, uh, all the way to Stowe, on Lucci Boogie, Golden Age of Rock and Roll. They were all hits in England. But over here, Columbia Records said we were FM. We weren't AM. So, therefore, they didn't want to put singles out over here. And I'm like, well, the Rolling Stones put singles out over here. This doesn't make any sense, you know. But that's how it was. So we were des designated FM by Columbia, and uh, they didn't bother with singles. I gotta say, by the time I'm listening to music in in that period, FM, you know, meant better sound and possibly stereo by the end of the seventies. What was yeah, what single, was the difference? But single sold albums. If you had a hit single, you had a hit album. Oh, so you needed the driver in a way. Yeah, yeah. You needed the singles, and they, they weren't doing that. They sort of, their first album, the, f the first group they had was 10 years after, and basically what they did was put 10 years after out every night of the week, you know, and concentrated on FM. We were the second band in, and they tried to do the same with us. Uh, and we weren't going to work every night of the week, and we wanted a bit more mystique involved. They just didn't know English bands, you know. Clive Davis is a great, you know, great record company man. But at that point in time, they were just used to the American bands. Sure, and trying to launch those acts like I guess Springsteen around the same period and others. Yeah, John Hammond. I met John Hammond. He was fantastic. He met, he's the guy that found Dylan. Uh, that's right. And then ten years later, the next Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Although I guess there were a lot of next Dylans, right? Yeah, well, the village was. Although I don't know, I mean, Bob. The way I read it, Bob was one of a lot of people in the village for quite a while. You know, nobody noticed, and then eventually he got lucky, and then bang, zoom, he was off. Like you said earlier, he stayed around. And not only that, he he was absorbing, he was sponging. You know, well, while we were sitting in Northampton getting drunk, he was sitting in poets' places, sponging all the greats. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit EverythingFab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, 
is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>